This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back listening to Militantly Mixed. Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, Tongva, Hohokam, and Yucateco Maya people, and we wish to pay our respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Konnichi, what's up, cousins? Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your sir, Auntie Charmaine Fury, a.k.a. the Blasian Blurred, the busiest mixed race, bi-gendered, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, cat mom, expat, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. This is the fifth anniversary episode of Militantly Mixed, y'all. I'm very excited about this. I am also going through a complete like, what does this mean for me and my future type of moment right now, which you might have been able to gather from last week's episode. I know that when I pressed record on Militantly Mixed, I was excited about what I was working on. And I think I knew after about the seventh or eighth or ninth episode that this was something I really wanted to do. Having this opportunity to speak to mixed people from all over the world about their own personal mixedness has been such a joy and so exciting for me. And it's just absolutely changed my whole life. And who I am as a person has changed pretty dramatically ever since pressing record as well. That I know on many occasions I've said, I want to do this forever. Or I can always do this. I, I can't believe I found this thing that I want to always do. And even as I said that, I think I believed I had intended that. But you still hit a milestone like five years. And it pauses you. And it makes you go, how the fuck did I do this? How did I start this thing and keep doing it? Or maybe that's just how I am. Because as I've talked about before in the past, I do suffer from this familial disease of a lot of creativity and passion and just losing motivation and or listening to imposter syndrome and just giving up and moving on to something else, uh, which I've suffered my whole life. And somehow I managed to fight through that inclination to, to move on, to quit, to give it up, to believe I wasn't the right person for this gig. And I did it. And not only did I do it, I've done it now for five years. I've won awards for this show. I've had articles written about me and about this show. I have traveled and spoke at different institutions because of this show. This show has opened up doors and opportunities that I never would have had if I decided to quit or never to press record. And I'm so grateful that I've had people to do this for <laughs> I guess I mean I think I could have done it for myself my other podcasts aren't nearly as popular as Militantly Mixed and I still do them because I enjoy doing them 
But with militantly mixed, it's it's not just that I enjoy doing them. It's that it is also useful and helpful for others and giving me an opportunity to find a way to serve my community, which is the militantly mixed way, is, is something I'm just so grateful for. So coming up into the fifth year anniversary episode, and I know not all podcasts mark their anniversaries in big ways, but for me, it's always important. And part of that is because I do suffer that it's not working out, just quit, or you're not the right person for this thing, quit. Um, for personal projects, mind you, I can do anybody else's project all the way through full steam, no problem. But when it's something that's important to me in the past, I've almost always been derailed, allowed myself to get derailed. Um, but that didn't happen with Militantly Mix, and Militantly Mix is literally the first thing <laughs> that 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 I ever pushed through something for. And so now it's a lot easier for me to try new things because of how successful I've been doing Militantly Mix. So I've been racking my brain for the last few weeks of what to do for this show. I've had ideas, actually, throughout the whole of 2023 so far, I've had ideas of different things I want to do for the show. And this is actually pretty common. Every anniversary year, I've, I've had this same type of thing going on. And the ideas that I usually come up with are either I don't have time to do it, I don't yet have the skill set to do it, or I don't have the budget to have someone else to do it for me. And so every year I end up doing something a little bit different than what I actually want to do because time, budget, skill set. This year was no different. My time, although slightly more free because there's no other job that I have, I'm living in a different environment where time just is so different here um, that a lot of time can go by without me getting something specific done. Um, or I'm focusing on one of the other projects and things like that. So, so time, I didn't necessarily have time to pull off the idea that I originally had. Skill set. I have the skill for some of what I want to do, but not all of what I want to do. And so ultimately, I would have had to get external help to be able to pull it off. Budget. Y'all know I'm always begging for money to keep this show going. So who am I to sit there and be like, hey, while you're donating for the show and donating to the Be Your Mix SF anthology, could you also donate to my little idea that I have for my fifth anniversary episode? No, that ain't happening right now. And until such time as I start racking stacks on advertisements and other opportunities for, for this brand, um, I still got to do things the way I do it. So low main. That's how the show started. That is how the show is still going five years later. And yet I still have a fairly large audience for a niche podcast and a podcast that's lasted five years. So you can't tell me shit. I'm really proud. <laughs> I'm really proud of this thing. And I'm really grateful that there's other people besides just myself <laughs> um, that appreciate Militantly Mixed. I'm really proud of this. But it wasn't my intention to cry all the way through this fifth anniversary episode. So give me a moment so I can suck it up and get into what I want to do today. I'm really proud of this thing. I'm proud that I stuck it out. And there have definitely been times when it's been different, uh, when it's been difficult to keep it going financially, emotionally, mentally. Uh, lifefully <laughs> but I'm so proud of this thing I'm so proud of Militantly Mixed 
I'm actually going to press pause and come back when I recover. Hold on. Man, I hate getting emotional. <laughs> um, all right. We're going to do the fifth anniversary episode. And I mean, even though those were happy tears, it's still, it's, you know, derailed my game. But there's a couple things I want to highlight for y'all or because it's coming up or because I want to support it. And then we'll get into today's episode. The first thing is on July 5th, the actual anniversary of Militantly Mix, I will be hosting an IG live at 5 p.m. Pacific, which is 8 p.m. Eastern, uh, U.S. time, I guess, still at 6 p.m. for me here in Medida. Uh, I will be hosting an IG live. You can come on there and celebrate with me um, from time to time. A cousin of the Militantly Mixed podcast will pop in to have a little chat with me for a few minutes. Uh, some of the times I'll be by myself. Some of the times I'll be with uh, cousins you can ask me questions uh we can listen to a little music we can bop i don't know whatever uh but i just want to spend some time with the community celebrating militantly mixed fifth anniversary together so if you have time if you can plug in even for just a few minutes and a little shout out uh if you want to donate to the show or as a gift or whatever for militantly mixed fifth anniversary i will have the paypal thing up there as well so yeah we're doing that july 5th 2023 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. The next thing that I want to highlight is that a couple weeks ago, no, I guess it'd be a couple months at this point, I had Maris Litica from the Blended Future Project on the show. It's an awesome episode. Go back and listen to it if you haven't already. Maris and I had a really great conversation both on and offline. And as I mentioned on the show, we've sort of been circling each other for years because we know a lot of the same professionally mixed people uh and we have participated in events where we've both been on like the roster for the event but we had actually never talked before we got a chance to sit down for the show since then we've been talking a little bit more and at the time he did mention that he was in the process of putting together a podcast of his own in connection with the business that he has uh helping mixed and BIPOC creators uh get their stuff out as, as like a creator coach. Uh, in addition to that, there is also the Blended Future Project, which is the documentaries, the short form documentaries as, a, as it is now uh, about mixed people, interracial couples, etc. I love the stuff that Maris does. And, uh, and so even before I got a chance to talk to him, I was already a follower and supporter. And when I found out that he was in the process of working on a podcast, I was like, do it. Just and press record right so his podcast launched i think about 10 days ago or so there's three episodes up so far and i've listened to two full episodes i'm partway through the third one and uh, i love it so far and the show is called the mixed creator and it is about mixed folks that are doing a thing whatever the thing is they're doing the show is about them as a mixed person, but also about what it is they're, they're doing out in the world. The first episode, for example, had Ken Tanabe on the show, the creator of The Loving Day Project, which is another person who I've 
professionally mixed circled for years. We know a lot of the same people. We've been participated in the same events, and yet we actually don't know each other. I need to get Ken on the show as well. But the first episode opens up with Ken Tanabe to talk about how he came from creating the Loving Day Project off of a school project that he realized partway through this actually could be a thing that would support the mixed community and continue to push forward with it outside of school. Um, he's also had authors, educators on the show so far, uh, people that work in the uh, digital media space as well, and uh, everybody on the show is a mixed creator. So in line with the business that Maris has in being a creative coach, creator coach for mixed folks, the show, he is talking to other mixed creatives out there. And sharing their stories. So I want to let y'all know that this exists so that you can go follow it. So whatever podcatcher you are listening to Militantly Mix on right now, please go ahead and search for The Mix Creator with Maris Lidica and uh, and give him a support, a follow there. Uh, listen to the episodes, drop some rates and reviews, uh, help, you know, blow up the spot so that people know that this podcast is out there existing. Um Maris is just someone that I believe in. I think he tells stories in a very honorable and thoughtful way. He really cares about sharing the the story, sharing the story. And I, I really appreciate him. So I hope that uh, y'all go ahead and support his podcast as well um, because he's dope and he does dope shit. So, yeah. And last thing before we get into the actual meat of today's episode, the only detail I have is when it's going to happen so far. Uh, but we're going to get into it next week when I share it, more de- information about it on next week's episode. I just want you to kind of have it in your brain. Uh, I will be doing an IG live again with Mixed Race Mama, a.k.a. Ria Maya Kur. Uh, we are going to be talking about different aspects of racial identity between those who grew up in the U.S. versus those who grew up in the U.K. And since Rhea is from the U.K. and I was born in the U.S., but I have a British family, we communicate really well. Uh, so we have a bunch of fun together, and we decided we want to keep that ball rolling. So we're going to host a IG Live together. I think because of our time difference, it'll be daytime uh, in the U.S., and it'll be nighttime in the U.K. I'm going to put some more information out about that next week. But I just want to let you know it's coming and we're working out the details now. But don't miss it because we're fun together. I, I really enjoy Rhea. It's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, let's get into today's episode. And what I ended up coming up with as a solution to my time, my skill set, and my budget not matching what I want to do. You may have been hearing more and more about this lately, the ChatGPT. It's an AI software that allows you to feed in information, ask questions, etc., and it either spits out research information for you, probably answers your question, or very politely will tell you that it doesn't have enough information. (laughs) And I started fiddling with it a couple weeks ago, And I've discovered ChatGPT works really well for me as a organize my thought thing. Um, I'm sure there's absolutely ways that you can abuse this software. But for me, what I found is that if I feed it information about something I want to do, it will help organize it in a way that is 
clear and makes sense and allows me to do the thing that I need to do. So if it's about planning an event, I feed it information, what I want to do, and it kind of spits out uh, an outline for me of how to go about that. And, and so as I've gotten older, what I've noticed is that I'm a little more scatterbrained than I've ever been in my life. I used to be far more organized and I, I believe I was a good multitasker in the past, but now I'm not a hundred percent sure that was the case. It's just, you know, the grind out in the world tells you to multitask, multitask. And now I realize that might be impossible. But anyways, before I get off track, uh, I've been feeding ChatGPT information about something I want to do. And then it helps organize what steps I need to take to get that thing done. And it has been immensely helpful for me for like just the last two weeks. And so I thought if I feed ChatGPT a whole bunch of information about Militantly Mixed, uh, transcripts from the shows, articles about the show, articles about me, websites, things like that or whatever, could it spit out ideas for what to do for the fifth anniversary podcast episode? And it did. It, it told me that I could, I could do a reflecting on the last five years and like chart the journey of growth that the show has been down. It, it talked about, you know, sharing some behind the scenes stuff or share some stories or anecdotes about the past, reaching out to listeners to get things, blah, 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 blah. A lot of the stuff that I've actually kind of done in the past. And I was like, all right, it's not too bad. Um, but let's take it up a notch. With all the information that I fed Jet, chat GBT about Militantly Mix, could it spit out uh, questions that I, Charmaine Fury, host of Militantly Mix, could ask me, Charmaine Fury, the host of Militantly Mix. And it did. And it, it, it came up with some questions that are eerily in my voice, first of all. Uh, so yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go ahead and answer these questions. And mind you, I fed it a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm kind of in a singular thread. So it's been gathering information for the last couple of weeks about the show. And that is how it's crafted some of these questions. So I thought for this episode of Militantly Mixed, celebrating the fifth anniversary, I'm going to interview myself with questions that ChatGPT has come up with based off of what it's learned about me and Militantly Mixed over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so here we go. <laughs> and mind you, I understand the AI software thing is, is very controversial at the moment. I definitely don't want it to be used in place of hiring actual writers for things. I don't want it to be used to write college essays or what have you. But for me and the way that I'm finding it useful, I feed it the information I want it to know, and it spits out an outline for me to organize how to go about doing the thing that I want to do. It's been immensely helpful, and I'm excited about it. But this is a, this is a different thing. This is like interview me with my own voice, and it's kind of creepy. <laughs> so let's go. We're going to get into it. I've read some of these questions. I haven't read all of them because after reading the first couple ones, I was like, God damn. So I'm just going to do some of these butt ass naked and read them straight for the first time right here with you right now. And we'll see what happens. Uh, this one I did read before, though, and it's pretty good. First question. Charmaine Fury, how has your understanding of your racial identity evolved since the beginning of the podcast? Have there been any significant moments or experiences that shaped this journey? That's a good question, ChatGBT Charmaine. Um, I think I'm in a unique position for a lot of mixed people in that 
I have now an archive of recordings for the last five years in which I started in one place and I'm constantly learning something new, evolving and adapting what I've learned into the way I move. And then I move that way for a while and then I hear something else, I learn something else, I evolve, I adapt and I keep it going. And if I am ever questioning my path or if I, if I don't know where I started in something, I can literally just go back to the first episodes and, and hear, and I am a different person than I was back when I started this show. And there's a lot of things that I did or said in ignorance before being exposed to other mixed people who had different experiences from me. And I've been able to, oh, I didn't know that, absorb the information, process the information, maybe even do some research in some cases I've had to do, and then adapt the new information into the way I move. And I will say that that process has gotten quicker than it was in the beginning. Because in the beginning, there was a lot of that thing that we naturally do when we learn that we might not necessarily have the right idea about something, you get kind of defensive and and you block the ability to learn for a little minute there, you know? Um, But now I'm so used to constantly learning new information about what it is to be a mixed person, I'm able to adapt that stuff a lot quicker. So I guess what I would want to say is the understanding of my racial identity has evolved from being a person that had a very monolithic belief that all mixed people experience these very specific things. And what I was actually doing there was focusing on my own mixed race experience. And it's so crazy that I even moved this way to a degree because I always knew my brother and I had different experiences as mixed people and we moved differently and we identified differently and yet I was around enough people that were similar to me growing up that I just kind of believed monolithically whether I knew that that's what I was doing that mixed people moved a certain way a lot of it was surrounded around having a black father and a non-black mother and some of the stereotypes that go along with that are definitely parts of my life but not necessarily parts of all mixed people who have a black father and a non-black mother. Definitely some Asian stereotypes that have existed in my life that are true for me, but aren't necessarily true for other mixed Asians that I've met as well. And so where I'm at now, I would say is I'm, I'm as fluid as you can be and still be a solid. Like I'm ready for the new information to hit me. I'm ready to have a militantly mixed cousin come on the show share something about their mixed identity with me, it'd be something totally different from my experience and me go, oh, and start to process that and adapt it into who I am today. When I started the show, I was a black girl that happened to be mixed. Well, I've said this a couple different ways. When I started the show, I was a mixed girl who happened to be black in the way that ever since I left Long Beach, I had to be a mixed person. Because when I left my neighborhood, people couldn't tell what I was anymore. And so I had to learn how to maneuver as a mixed person as opposed to maneuvering as a mixed black person. As I started to do the show and sort of reclaim my identity back for me and allow me to be the person that tells you what I am, the black person that happens to be mixed has come back. And that feels more comfortable. 
it's it's the coat that fits my body. Um, I do have a hierarchically black identity, but I am a mixed person. And not only that, I I exist in all the cultures for the most part. I have access to all the cultures that I come from, and so I'm able to participate in them. Uh, what has changed, though, is my Asian identity. I now have a more a stronger comfort in expressing my Asianness, or more specifically, my Asian Americanness, uh, even more so than my Japaneseness, because I've now found myself in spaces in which I'm being welcomed as a Asian American who happens to be mixed versus a not enough Asian, and it has given me a lot that I didn't have from childhood because I had to hide that I was black from my Asian side. So now I feel like a more robust black Japanese mixed person than I was when I started this journey. And it would never have happened if I didn't have access to Militantly Mixed. If Militantly Mixed wasn't what brought me to the dance, I wouldn't have had access to a lot of these um, mixed spaces, mixed black spaces, mixed Asian spaces, uh, black Asian solidarity spaces, etc. And I think for the second question, any significant moments or experiences that shaped this, where the Asian identity has um, been reformed, it, it came off of getting the uh, combination. In 2020, I received the Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane Award for Best Logo. And what was crazy about that at the time was I had just changed the logo about five, six months earlier. The reason why I changed it is because the example of the Japanese flag that I was using in the back of that logo was from the Japanese naval ensign flag, which what I didn't know at the time was just a flag that I liked and the flag that was around my house growing up. Um, and it's in a lot of pop Japanese art is the flag that was flown during Japanese imperialism across Asia. And so that flag in Korea, in the Philippines, in Vietnam, in other places, uh, China as well, uh, was a symbol of oppression. And I was not aware of that. As a mixed Japanese, as an American kid, I was not aware of it. And it wouldn't have been something I would have researched in advance because we had it at home. And I didn't, I just didn't know. And a listener brought it to my attention and said, you know, given what I hear in your show, the two things don't match. I don't believe you intend harm in having this in your logo and maybe you're just possibly uninformed about what that symbol means to other Asians. And first of all, they came at me in just the right way for me to hear. They didn't accuse me of being um, prejudiced against other Asians or anything like that. They just straight up saying, your voice doesn't match the image. And so I'm asking out of curiosity, are you aware of the history? And from that moment, becoming aware of the history, I knew immediately I had to change the logo. Um, it was a both a hard and a easy decision to make. Hard because I viewed the logo as a graphic self-portrait, a representative of my racial identity. And so if I were to create, if I had to have an assignment in school, like create a logo based off of who you are as a person, that original logo was it. And so the difficulty about it was changing a thing that felt very personal to me. The easy part about it was you've just become aware that this flag is equivalent to the Confederate flag in the United States or equivalent to the Nazi flag for Jewish people. Can you still move knowing that? 
And the absolute <laughs> answer is no, I could not. So I had to make that change. Um, within a week or so, I, I managed to get the new the designers to work on the new logo based off the idea that I had to replace it. Um, they fixed it, and I started to to change the logo as it appears in other places. Now, I know that for the most part, I knew where it was and I updated it, but every now and then it'll pop up, it'll surface with the old logo and it'll surprise me because that means I didn't get it to everywhere. And sometimes it pops up in like a 50 best Asian American podcast list or something like that. And they'll pull somehow the old logo instead of the new logo. Um, so there's still times it'll come up. I'll find it and I'll replace it. It's, it's not from negligence. It's just like sometimes when you put something out on the internet, it has a mind of its own. I'm also aware that somebody else has used my logo as their identity on Instagram and stuff like that. And I've, I, you know, there is copyright and stuff like that. I can, I can pursue, but hopefully the person just learns to take it down. I, I've messaged them a couple of times, but every now and then I see it pop up again. So yes, I have, I have shifted so much because I've made this change to this logo Five months later, I get acknowledged by an Asian American association about how how attractive my logo was. <laughs> and then I told the story as part of my acceptance speech, and they didn't even know. They had no idea about the history. of. They just liked it as a representative Asian logo, podcast logo. Um, but it meant it, it was so much more meaningful after because of that. And then the following year, I received an Asian American podcasters award, uh, for best Asian stories, culture and experiences. And I share that award alongside another podcast called immigrantly. So that year in that category, two podcasts were selected to as, as the best representative of cultural and experiential stories of Asians. And to, to make that even like more goofy for me, I hear best Asian when I saw that award and I hear um, them telling me I'm a good Asian <laughs> and that was so significant and I know what's happening. I, I, the, what I submitted was um, an episode with myself and Ryan Alexander Holmes uh, talking about, you know, it's not that I don't look Asian. It's just that you haven't seen an Asian that looks like me before and about specifically black Asian identity and for that to be one of the um, podcasts that were selected that year, the other podcast, Immigrantly, tells the stories of immigrant Amer Asian Americans or immigrant Asian immigrants to America. And um, the fact that we both were awarded for representative of Asian stories in America was very important to me. Um, and I understand why it was difficult to choose between the two of us. I've listened to the podcast as well you know, for just a solo winner, I, I understand why that, <laughs> that was tough because we're, we were shedding light on aspects of Asian American identity that not all Asians talk about or isn't widely talked about. And so that was a very significant moment in shaping my journey towards acceptance as an Asian in the, both the acceptance speech and the interaction afterwards, because these were virtual events during COVID, um, people were telling me, you know, because of something I said in, in the, in the speech, uh, people were telling me you are Asian enough. You're Asian. Like you're not half, you're not a quarter, you're not part, you're Asian, be Asian. It's fine. And getting that sort of, um, community acceptance, given that I hadn't even experienced that in my own family, um, growing up, I'm accepted as Charmaine. I'm not necessarily accepted as Japanese black Charmaine, you know, um, 
it really changed how I viewed myself as a mixed Asian at that point. And that was very significant for me. Next question, ChatGPT Charmaine. Reflecting on the past five years, what have been the most memorable episodes or interviews of Militantly Mixed? And how have those conversations influenced your perspective on race and identity? Uh, I mean, I tend to bringing up some of the same episodes a lot because of uh, how much of an emotional impact they had on me as an individually mixed person. Um, obviously, the first episode, episode one, was John Corbin. He says something to me that rocked my whole foundation of what I thought it was to be a mixed black person. And that is why that episode ended up being the first episode. And what he says is, I found myself fighting to be seen as white. And that was something that I could not I, uh, identify with. I couldn't relate to in any way, shape, or form. As a mixed black person, I couldn't imagine wanting to not be black. And um, in, in having a longer conversation with him, I, I understood what he, he was experiencing. He grew up uh, in Canada with his white Mennonite mother. They can trace their Mennonite heritage back. I, I believe at the time it was like nine generations or something. Um, but that's the parent he grew up with. So he's in a very white world and he lived in a very white area of Toronto. And his um, Guyanan father wasn't always present. And so he didn't have a black identity and yet he was being viewed as a black person. And so he had such anxiety about entering black spaces and feeling like an imposter because he, he didn't have an identity that was backed up with experiences. You know, father taking you to the barbershop, um, having black family around, etc. He didn't really have that. And so it would have just been so much easier for him to grow up appearing more white uh, so that he can move in society without having to answer questions that he didn't have answers for. And um, he was one of the first seven people that I interviewed before I, I released an episode. And what I was doing was I was doing these research episodes or research interviews and where I was connecting with people online and I was like, will you come on and chat with me for about an hour just so I can get an idea of what I could do to create a uh, to create a mixed podcast? Because at the time, like I said, there were no active mixed race podcasts. There were only dead podcasts that were at least a year old or older. And so I didn't really know what would the world want out of a mixed podcast. And so I just started having these conversations with people and I was recording them. And then when I got, and he was the seventh person in a row that I spoke to. The first person just exploded my world and I cried for hours because I'd never had a conversation with a, a non-family member mixed person like I had with the first person. And that person was Jules, who ended up being, I think, episode seven of Militantly Mixed. Uh, the seventh person in this run of, of interviews was John Corbin. And when he said that thing about fighting to be seen as white, uh, I it clicked into place what Militantly Mixed was going to be. Militantly Mixed was going to be just conversations with me and another mixed person because we don't get to see anything like that. And uh, I, I really, I remember turning off that interview and going, oh, this is what the show is. And so I just reached back out to a lot of those first seven people, and I said, could I do one with you now that I know that this is what I'm going to do? And with John, I did have a couple conversations recording, but I think I ended up using the first discussion that we had. I actually don't remember now that it's been five years. Um, and if, I, if it was the second conversation we had, I think he worded it differently the first time. 
but it was still significant enough for me to realize this is what I had to do with the show. But when I heard, I felt like I was fighting BC and white. It was a, it, it just smacked me in the face with what? Everything that I thought about mixedness is different because two of us don't have the same way of moving. And I knew that that's what the show was going to be about. So, I mean, right off the gate, I have one of the most, uh, right off the gate, I have two of the most um, memorable and influential conversations of my life. And they made it onto the show in different kinds of ways uh, later on. Um, Jules, the Raised by Rap episode, um, for me, it was the idea of being a black presenting mixed person and, um, and, and the different kinds of invalidation that he received growing up. Um, and on a daily basis, that some of it I could relate to, even though I didn't have a more obviously black appearance, but some of it uh, was surprising too, because in my eyes, again, I'm thinking if I could just look blacker, I won't have to answer so many questions, I'll be a lot more comfortable. And here he was what I thought I wanted, and he was experiencing the same exact invalidation and discomfort. If I just looked more mixed, people wouldn't think, you know, X, Y, Z about me. And so too early on, those two were very significant moments for me. And I go back and talk to Jules and John um, ever since because of, of how significant they were in altering what I thought militantly mixed was going to be. Um, not even altering, helping me find it, helping me find what militantly mixed was going to be because I knew I wanted to have conversations about mixedness, but I didn't know how those were going to play out until I just started to record regular ass conversations. And in the end, that was absolutely what needed to happen. Um, my perspective on race and identity is like I said in the early question, it's, uh, it's able to change on a dime now and not in a way that's like, Oh, you don't really know who you're, who you are. It's really in a way because there's still a through line of who I am. I'm always hierarchically mixed. I'm black and then Japanese and then British. Um, there's certain things about me that always stay the same, but what is, what is able to be fluid is how I view myself versus how others view me and how I let that influence me or not let that influence me. And that wasn't a tool in my toolkit until doing militantly mixed. And the third question, chat GBT Charmaine, as a black Japanese American currently living in Mexico, how has your experience of racial identity been influenced by your surroundings? Have you faced unique challenges or discovered new insights in this multicultural context? Um, this is probably one of the eeriest questions that it came up with because I didn't tell it to ask me this question. I just fed it a whole bunch of information. AI <laughs> uh, is going to take over the world, y'all. Um, I am definitely stru not struggling. I'm, I'm going through something as a black Japanese American living in Mexico for sure. I I've been introducing myself and I talked about it in last week's episode. I've been introducing myself in a way that says I'm black and Japanese because I'm hoping that explains why I don't speak Spanish given what I look like, given that I'm so often confused with being Latine. Um I need people to understand I'm not a no sabo kid. I, it's not that I don't speak Spanish because my family assimilated into American culture. I don't speak Spanish because I don't have a Spanish origin. I don't have as a language. I don't have a Latine origin. 
as an ethnicity. And every time I've said that I've been missed or, or I've been directed somewhere else or been told that's not important. And, um, out of context of what the culture itself has, I was thinking, how are you telling me that my racial identity is not important? But what's happening is that race is such a sensitive topic here that they don't talk about it publicly and they, they more unite or behind the national I- ideal of being a Mexican. Um, and I imagine that's very difficult for people who have more of an indigenous identity or a mixed identity here um, because they want to uphold those things and yet they live in a culture that's they're being told not to talk about that. And me as, as both a foreigner and a person who is multiracial, um, the thing that they value more about my presence here is that I am an American, not that I am a black Japanese American. And so my, I, while I do determine my own identity and I have no problem there, it's, it's not making me question my identity as a black Japanese person. What it's doing is my interactions aren't happening the way that they're happening because I'm a mixed person, because I'm a black and Japanese person. The interactions that I'm I'm having here are because I'm an American. And that's the thing that is sending me in a bit of a spiral because while I was born in America, I don't feel like I move with an American identity. I feel like I move as a black Japanese person who has sort of a second-class citizenship in the own country that I was born in. But here, I'm granted first-class American citizenship in Mexico. And that comes with some ickiness for me. It comes with some issues of classism, which also, of course, comes with issues of racism and stuff like that. But in the way that I don't have the context for how they deal with racism here quite in the local understanding of it. I mean, obviously it's not that I don't see racism, I do. Uh, there's absolutely colorism here as well. Um, the treatment of the people that are more Maya identified definitely is different than how they treat other Mexican people here. Um, it's not that I don't understand that it's there, it's that I don't understand it yet because I'm not from here and I need to have more conversations about it and people aren't as willing to have conversations about it. So the unique challenges I'm having is how do I, how do I move as an American foreigner in Mexico versus a black Japanese person? Uh, And I don't have the answer to that question yet. (laughs) But it's definitely been a significant um, shift for me. And it, it wasn't something that I could quite anticipate in the way that it's happened so far. So catch me next year and I'll be able to answer that question probably a little bit better. I didn't realize I was going to take so long to answer some of these, so I'm not going to do all 10 of them, but I'm going to do a couple more of these because they're fun. So the fourth question, can you share a specific instance where your podcast had a positive impact on someone's life or initiated important conversations about race and identity? And how did that experience make you feel? This is actually a wild question. Um, Again, I didn't feed it this stuff. It's just asking me this based off of my voice, which is kind of crazy. Early on, the significant instances of positive impacts had to do with people telling me that I was validating them as mixed people. And while I didn't sign up for that role, it took me a while to understand I was going to have that role as an unofficial validator um, or accidental validator, I think is what I used to call it, 
uh, because I was one of the few forward-facing, public-facing mixed people talking about this kind of stuff. Because again, at the time I started the show, there was no other active podcast about mixedness going until some kind of brown, which follows militantly mixed by a couple weeks to a month. But even then, we we were having different types of conversations, and and people who followed me didn't know about her, and people who followed her didn't know about me yet until we found each other, <laughs> and that's when people started to learn about two mixed podcasts that existed and that was natalie evans the host of some kind of brown so people would say i would there was being a lot of tears in the beginning where someone would say you know it's so nice to have someone you know tell me i'm it's okay for me to be mixed or it's it's you know thank you for that like i would literally get emails like thanking me for validating their mixed identity uh, regardless of what they look like they were either too white looking too black looking too asian looking too this too that um, not enough of this, not enough of that. And just having a conversation with me where I'm constantly telling them, you know, you're enough, you're mixed, it's fine. That was a big part of the first uh, year of the show, honestly. It still happens. I'm not going to lie, it does still happen. But because mixedness is more widely talked about, um, it's usually like, when I first heard your show, I felt X, Y, Z about myself. But now that I've been listening for so long, or now that this is the first time I'm talking to you, I feel much more confident. But that first year, it was, I'm literally the first mixed person they've talked to um, outside of their family or at all. And uh, that position of accidental validator was pretty significant in the beginning. It was uncomfortable for me because I didn't I didn't want people to need me to validate them, but I understood why I was the gateway to validation for people in the beginning. And, you know, in hindsight, I am glad that I served that purpose. But at the beginning, I was like, whoa, that's way too much responsibility. <laughs> but now I understand why it happened. In later years of the show and even recently, I think what's important is that we're creating a language. And, and so it's not just me. It's not just this podcast. It's, it's all the other platforms about mixedness that's out there now, which I'm a major part of, I think, because of Militantly Mixed. People created podcasts because they heard mine. I've been told that by some of the creators of other podcasts. People have started posting about their own mixedness on their own Instagram channels or platforms because they heard there was somebody else out there talking about mixedness. And so while that wasn't something that I was intentionally doing or expecting out of starting the show, really I started the show because I selfishly wanted to talk to more mixed people. The byproduct of doing that was people did get a little bit more confidence in representing themselves as mixed people publicly. And now we have language. We have new words to describe what we experience as mixed people and that's the thing I'm the most excited about because there are words we use now to describe ourselves or there's ways of talking about ourselves now to describe ourselves as mixed people that did not exist when I started the show and that's dope I'm so glad that we have that I'm gonna look for a couple more and again now I'm in the section of where I haven't read them yet fifth question what are some of the key lessons you've learned as a podcaster over the last five years? How has podcasting medium allowed you to explore and amplify mixed race perspective in unique ways? I think the most unique way was that we were talking about it for the first time publicly. Um, in the past, if there was if there was some kind of mixed representation, and, and let's use the Cheerios commercial, for example. Everybody knows what we're talking about when we say the Cheerios commercial here in the United States. Um, it was one of the first times there was a commercial that was in your face about an interracial couple having a mixed race child. There was a mixed biracial black and white child 
eating cereal, having conversations with her white mom, and then in the other part, having conversations with her black dad. The funny thing is they never put the parents together in the scene, but depending on which commercial you're watching, you're either watching her with her white mother or her black father. And that sent shockwaves through the world. Oh my gosh, interracial kid or you know, interracial couple, mixed kid and stuff like that. Those were always created by people that weren't us. Uh, and in doing militantly mixed, people were hearing about mixedness from a mixed person, which is why my introduction has not changed from the beginning. A podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. It was important to me that people heard about us from us or that we heard about ourselves from us. More importantly, that we heard about ourselves from people like us. And then the secondary benefit is other people, monoracial people could hear about us from us versus what their idea of us is. So that those things that some of us heard growing up, oh, you think you're cuter than me, you think you have better hair, you think yes, you think that, you think this. Um, those were things that were put on us. Those were most likely never how we thought about ourselves. And if anything, we, we felt so invalidated of anything as a mixed person that we were not trying to, you know, stun on hoes for being mixed. That wasn't, <laughs> that w- that's never been the case of any mixed person that I knew. Uh, according to Facebook groups, there's definitely people like that in the world. But, you know, that wasn't me. That wasn't my game. And uh, so being able to use the the podcast medium, which was such an easy gateway, it was free-ish to participate in, or at least low cost. Um, All you had to do was be able to record something and put it up. Um, I just happened to know how to edit because I was a filmmaker before this. So even though my sound quality wasn't great in the beginning, um, it got better over time, of course, Um, having these conversations was free easy access to the listener and mostly free for me in the beginning and it was just a new thing which would allow a a whole world of mixedness and discussions about being mixed to flourish because if I if I had if I'd had the budget I would have been making documentaries I would have been making fictional narrative movies about mixed people that was what I wanted to do that's what I went to film school for I was literally going to do that but I didn't have the opportunities and I didn't have the monies to pull those off. Uh, podcasting, I had enough money to podcast. And so it was an a easy way to amplify mixed voices and my own mixed perspective um, because it was such a, a low barrier uh, thing to enter. So some of the key lessons that I've learned as a podcaster is, is the thing I always tell people, press record. And that could be anything. Whatever the thing is you want to do, do the thing that makes it happen. If you want to be a writer write every day even if it's garbage at first just write um I wanted to be a podcaster my episodes weren't garbage but they weren't great they weren't great um air they weren't quite great sound quality they were great conversations but they weren't great quality um you know for sound and things like that I didn't have all the tools for how to monetize I still don't have the tools for how to monetize I you know I didn't have all the the promotion marketing skill set or anything like that. I just wanted to record conversations and I wanted other people to be able to hear them and and podcasting made that easy. Um, If you want to write, you're not going to become a better writer by not writing. So write. If you want to be a filmmaker, but you don't have a budget, you have an iPhone or a Samsung galaxy, start pressing record and you know, you'll only get better because you're actually doing the thing. 
you want to be a better swimmer, swim every day. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it podcasting and growing with this show taught me that if there was something I wanted to do, uh, the only thing to do was to do it. Ain't nothing to it but to do it. That was how it was going to get done. And so I think I've become such a better podcaster. I'm, I'm certainly a better communicator because of these conversations that I get to have. And, and yeah, the key takeaway, if there's something you want to do, do whatever the free version of it is first. <laughs> so you don't have to put so much money out while you're trying to learn. Just do the thing. Go to YouTube, whatever. Just do the thing. And, uh, and eventually you'll get to a place of comfort that you can do this. Now, for me, I was learning while pressing record. I was learning on the fly. Uh, it just so happened, the benefit for me was that I happened to know how to edit before I got in. So, you know, that was that. In what ways has podcasting provided a platform for your own personal growth and self-expression? Have there been any unexpected benefits and challenges along the way? The unexpected benefit is that I'm mixed main. I mean, I was always mixed main. My whole life I was mixed main, but now people know me as mixed main and I can enter a space I can enter a mixed space without knowing the organizers and people get excited that I'm participating. Uh, that's happened to me on a couple of um, like virtual event things, uh, classes or workshops. And then someone goes, oh my God, Charmaine's in the room. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's weird. That's weird to be known for being. Okay, so growing up, I was the mixed kid because people knew I had a Japanese mom. Like, oh, you mean Charmaine, the mixed girl? Yeah, I th people would. I, that's how people thought of me. Now I'm still Charmaine, the mixed person, but I'm Charmaine, the mixed podcaster, and that's weird, but it's awesome too at the same time. It's kind of fun. Um, personal growth. I mean, literally, the way I view identity is different now. I mean, I've always felt like it was something you determined for yourself. At the same time, not always allowing myself to be the determiner. You know, sometimes I would just let other people tell me what I was to make things easy, make it more comfortable for them. Um, now you can't, like I said, you can't tell me shit now. I mean, I wish someone would try to tell me to just be one or just choose one. That's never going to happen. I, I can't. I'm too balanced. I'm, I'm too much all the things. So I'm going to keep being all the things and I'm going to keep telling people to be all the things. Or be the things that you're more comfortable with. If you're a mixed person who identifies with one group over the others, and that's just where you want to sit, that is you being your mixed-ass self. Um, for me, I, wanna, I want it to be clear that my identity, though hierarchical, is still a mixed identity. And that however I choose to occupy my day as a mixed person, whether I'm in black spaces, Asian spaces, British spaces, or a combination of all of those things... Um, all of that is correct and okay. So my my personal growth is that I no longer allow for a second somebody to tell me what I get to be. And I'm going to keep talking about mixedness. I'm going to keep being my mixed-ass self. And I'm going to keep encouraging people to be their mixed-ass self no matter what that means. And I didn't know I was going to come up with such a good-ass slogan when I started the show. But screaming be your mixed ass self to Gretchen on episode I think 13 or 11 or whatever it was <laughs> that was the inside coming out that was me on the inside screaming what I needed to hear my whole life and I just happened to scream it at someone I went to high school with <laughs> and then I guess the last one will be looking forward 
what are your aspirations and goals for the future of Militantly Mixed? And how do you envision the podcast evolving and continuing to make an impact? You know what? Fuck you, uh, ChatGPT, because you're right up in my brain right now. And that makes me uncomfortable. Um, as I've been talking about, the, especially a combination of the of hitting five years of doing Militantly Mixed and, and really not changing the show too much throughout the, the years, if I'm honest. I have the same the same basic thing. I have a conversation with a mixed person about them being a mixed person. What's evolved during that time has been the way I ask the questions or, or how improvisational I am or how comfortable I am and in with people um, talking about this thing. I've, I've improved a lot of skills in conversation, I would say, over the years. But I haven't really changed the show too much. Um, living here in Mexico, though, and being in an environment where I'm not always where I'm not a mixed person first to the people around me. Again, that's not affecting my personal view of myself, but it is affecting how I move in spaces because I'm, I'm actively having to adapt from telling people I'm black and Japanese all the time <laughs> to explain questions to trying to figure out how to be an American here. I think the show will have to evolve because I won't be interacting on a daily basis with folks where my mixedness is, is at the forefront. In fact, since I've been here, the only, you know, longer conversations that I've had as a mixed person has been with mixed people or black people. Um, I had visitors about a month ago that were customers from my comic book shop in Houston, and they were an interracial Blasian family, black mother, Chinese father, the children were Blasian. We talked about race because it was a big part of how we even met. You know, <laughs> the fact that I was a Blasian store owner <laughs> and they were a Blasian family was a big part of how we met. So we, we talked about it. Um, when I went to Juneteenth and I was at all of the, um, and I was at the Black Medita event, I was talking to black people there about me being mixed with a main identity of black and, and they were picking up on it anyway. But, you know, someone said to me, it must be hard for you to have to always explain how black you are. <laughs> so that was one of the conversations that I've had here in Mexico was with a monoracial identified black person. Uh, and then last week I got to see a guest of Militantly Mex in person as well, Shavara Oren from the I Was Born a Disruptor episode from last year. Uh, she happened to be here on vacation, found out I was living here at the time. We decided to meet up for a day and we hung out. We, we um, had breakfast and walked around, met it together and talked. And of course, as two mixed people, we talk about mixedness all day long. So the only way in which I've been able to exist as a fully formed mixed person here in Mexico has been with people within my community. Um, but people within the Mexican community or the local Medida community specifically, I haven't been able to have those kind of conversations. So I do think that at some point that'll have an impact on me as a person. And uh, I don't know how that it'll impact the show, but I just believe it will. I mean, so many things in my life has impacted the show. Um, the fact that I started to acknowledge my mental health publicly more often has impacted the show in that now I do mental health hiatuses and I openly talk about mental health on the show, which is something I wouldn't have done five years ago. So naturally living in another country and not existing with the day-to-day, -day, like I'm literally not having to be afraid or or hypervigilant about being asked where you are, wh uh, what are you, or where are you from, no, where are you really from. I've been here for nearly... I think I'm coming really close to 100 days here in Mexico. That's 100 days I've never been asked, what are you? I've never gone that long in my life not being asked that question. So it's changing me. 
I don't know what and how its full impact is going to be yet, but it's definitely changing me. And I think the way in which I will exist as a mixed person will naturally shift over time because of the time period I live in a country where race isn't the main topic of conversation. Now, if the next country I move to from here is a country that race is an, a major issue there, will I revert back to my old ways? Will I just evolve into a different version of myself? Absolutely, both, probably. Um, I don't know. But for now, I am trying to learn how to not be hypervigilant <laughs> about waiting for someone to ask me what I am. And mind you, when I see American and British tourists, I the hypervigilance peaks back up and I'm waiting for it. But I'm thinking that they think I'm Mexican unless they hear me open my mouth, to be honest, because that's what would have happened back in the States anyway. So yeah, uh, stay tuned. I'll keep you posted on <laughs> what my personal growth looks like um, as a podcaster. But I do just want to close out by saying that this last five years of Militantly Mix has, has not only been a fulfilling one, but it has been both an easy and a difficult one. It has been fulfilling and life-altering. Um, it has changed my path so many times, and I think it will continue to do so. As I grow and evolve, and maybe I do actually grow and evolve into a different medium or whatever, and as I take Militantly Mix mixed with me, in those changes. I hope that y'all continue to ride with me. I hope that you continue to enjoy these conversations that I'm having with folks. Or if you want to have one of those conversations with me, that you'll jump on the Militantly Mixed website and click on the button so that we can have a chance to chat. I'm, I, I just can't even put it all the way into words what it is to understand where I was at the time I pressed record, I was in probably one of the lowest points in my whole life. It was such a difficult time that I was going through. Um, you've heard me refer to the big bad thing that happened to me. Um, there was a big bad thing that happened to me that I can't talk about legally. <laughs> Fucking NDAs. And uh, I basically slept on my couch for 18 months in the dark watching 30 walk on repeat I was so massively depressed I couldn't find the next thing I couldn't find my path I was struggling to find a job um, I was blacklisted in a, in a particular industry that I was in and I didn't know who I was going to be and I really just started to work on militantly mixed to give me a project and it wasn't even probably something I thought I would still do after a while I just needed something to get me off the couch every day and um, little bit by little bit, I started to come back alive in, in having these conversations with mixed folks. And, and I gave myself a huge lead time. I, I, I was actively working on it for about six months before I actually released, an, or even, I didn't even have a release date until like three months in. And then a person told me in a podcast class that I took, if you don't set a date, you won't do it. And uh, I, I'll i be honest, when I first started, I'm not sure, even though I was publicly telling people I was working on it, I'm not sure I was going to release it until a person told me, set a date. That has now translated for me, for other people, into press record. And I, 
it did so much for my life. It dug me out of that particular bout of major depression. It's given me room to allow when depression comes back to exist in it and deal with it. It's allowed me to have conversations with people from all over the world that I would never have had opportunity to speak to if it wasn't for the show. There are friends in my life, real life friends that are so important to me now that I would never have had if I didn't press record Asian Soph, Rohan Jolie, Teresa Stovall, Naturally Mona Lisa, Sonia Smith-Kang, Sarah Lotus. I get and I give to the community in a way that I, I didn't know was going to be possible before the community kind of existed. And it didn't exist until Militantly Mixed was started. So I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so proud of this work. And, um, and I can't believe I didn't even use this whole fifth anniversary episode to really, really talk about Be Your Mixed Self beyond mentioning yelling at it at Gretchen. But this show has given me the opportunity to be my mixed-ass self in a way I would have never been able to imagine before. And I'm literally my mixed-ass self all day fucking long now. And I wasn't like that before. I didn't get a chance to be like that. I didn't learn how to be like that until after doing this show. And so I, for that and for all the cousins that I've developed over the last five years um, with an over 200 episodes, 200 discussions, not to mention the countless discussions I've had offline or at events or what have you. It's just, it's everything. And I'm so proud to still be here as Charmaine Fury, militantly mixed, even in my beginning origins as Mixed Girl Maine before I started to express my gender. Um, identity to Saranti Maine, the whole evolution, the Blasian Blurred, that this has all been possible because I've been able to do this show and I've been actually able to look into myself and deal with the things that I wasn't dealing with uh, for myself. And none of that would have been possible without this show. So on that note, we come to the end of the fifth anniversary episode. Please make sure to tune in to the Instagram live on Wednesday, July 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm still doing that math. It's so weird. I'm still in the same part of the world, the same hemisphere, but time is so strange to me now. Keep coming back. Keep telling your story, listening to other stories. Come on Militantly Mixed if you'd like to by going to militantlymixed.com and clicking on that link to be a guest. The show doesn't exist without the cousins of the world, so thank you. Thank you to everybody for that. And on that note, don't forget, be your mixed ass self. Peace, y'all. Happy anniversary. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast, produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, The One. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, 
to be your mixed ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.